Here at Calvary Chapel Northeast, it's our goal to make disciples of Christ by exalting our God, equipping believers, and engaging in our community. Thanks for tuning in to this week's CCNE podcast. Today, Pastor Brendan will be teaching out of the book of Matthew. All right. Well, this morning we are going to be continuing our study in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll be picking back up in Matthew chapter 17 uh, in verse 14. If you have your Bibles with you this morning, you can turn there. And, uh, you know, in my preparation for this message, and, and we'll, we'll make our way to the end of chapter 17 here, we really have uh, two distinct stories that we'll consider here this morning. And as I, as I read through them, as I was studying, even as I was considering coming into the new year, uh, I couldn't help but think of this, this phrase um, that we often hear in our culture today. It's actually attributed to Benjamin Franklin, one of the founding fathers of this country, and it's said that upon completion of the Constitution in 1789 that he wrote in a letter, our new Constitution is now established and has an appearance that promises permanency. But in this world, nothing can be said to be certain except death and taxes. You heard that before? Often it's those few words uh, that get quoted, death and taxes, that's the only thing we can count on, right? Uh, This phrase, in fact, has given way to the rather bleak outlook of some in this world who indeed feel that the only thing that's certain, the only thing that they can count on, is their inevitable death and the government's demand for their money. Well, this morning we come to a passage that deals, in fact, with both of these things, death and taxes. We'll see Jesus once again mention his death, And we'll also consider a conversation between he and Simon Peter on the pain of temple tax. And perhaps it's fitting, being the last Sunday of 2020, that with New Year this week, New Year's coming, that we will in fact find ourselves in tax season. I'm sure all of you are looking forward to that. But as we prepare for the New Year, my hope is that our confidence would reach far higher than the certainty of death and taxes. That while true, yes, death and taxes serve as the evidences of this fallen world in which we live, it reminds us, of course, that we're still in this in-between time. We're in this space still as believers today, this space between Christ's first coming, His incarnation and His his death and His resurrection, the work of the cross, and still anxiously awaiting His return. His return for His church followed by His glorious second coming. But the thing is for us as believers, because of Jesus, because of His work on the cross, we're called to more. We're given more. We've been given a hope, a living hope. And it's my desire for us this morning, as certainly many of you to one degree or the other are considering the year ahead, that it wouldn't just be about taxes and about the, of course for us, the reality of this pandemic around us and the continued discussion of death, but rather that this morning as we look to His Word, that our faith would be strengthened, that we would look beyond those things, that we would look to the hope that Christ has given us, that as we look to this new year, one that will likely be filled with its own difficulties and disappointments as life this side of heaven often is, that again with Jesus, we have reason to count on so much more. In fact, for us as Christians, continuing to live in a fallen world, it could be said that the certainties for us are not so much death and taxes as faith and taxes. 
And I would title the message such this morning. You see, it's faith that takes our perspective beyond the difficulties of this world. It puts our hope in something greater. With Jesus, it's not death. We have victory over death. And so faith is our certainty. We can, in faith, depend on the Lord. And then, of course, there's the idea of taxes. And the fact is, it's more than that. It's more about this this fee, if you will, that we must pay. It's a, a reminder for us that we are still in this world. The reality of what you need to tackle as this year begins should remind us that we're, we're still here. And so faith isn't intended to keep our heads in the clouds, as it were, somehow ignoring this world until Jesus comes back. No, faith allows us to engage in the world that we are living in in a way where it makes a difference for the kingdom of God, Lord willing. And so for us this morning, it's faith in taxes. That's what we'll consider. And hopefully as we do this, my desire for you is that you'd leave here this morning with four key things that will serve to encourage you as you prepare for the year ahead. We begin this morning, as I mentioned, in verse 14. And if you would, just read the first few verses here along with me. It says, And when they had come to the multitude, a man came to him, kneeling down to him and saying, Lord, have mercy on my son. For he is an epileptic and suffers severely, for he often falls into the fire and often into the water. And so I brought him to your disciples, but they could not cure him. You see, no sooner is Jesus and three of his disciples coming down off of the mountain than do they encounter the multitudes, this this same group of people that have been following them all over the place. And, And this man that's come to him is burdened for his son. Like others we've seen in Matthew's gospel, their burden has brought them to Jesus. When we have a burden, that's a good place for us to go is to the feet of Jesus like we find with this man. Now the thing is, with Jesus having been up on the mountain with Peter, James, and John, as they witnessed, as Jesus was praying, His transfiguration, His glory, only partially revealed to them, As they were experiencing this incredible moment, that means that there was nine other men that were down below, that were there amongst the people. And apparently, they had attempted to heal this boy. Now remember, Jesus had given them authority to heal. He had given them authority to heal in His name. But this time, whatever it was that they were doing, it wasn't working. And the man now comes to Jesus... And in verse 17, we see Jesus' reply. It says, Then Jesus answered and said, O faithless and perverse generation, how long shall I be with you? How long shall I bear with you? Now, from our perspective, Jesus seems to be a bit frustrated here. This isn't that different, however, than what we hear God the Father Himself say when He meets with Moses on the Mount of Sinai and is aware of what's happening with the people down below as God says, how long must I bear with these people? And I think we'll learn here in a moment why it is that Jesus is feeling this way. But what is it exactly that prompts His response? Well, the indictment that he makes here is about the lack of faith on the part of the people. As he says, you faithless and perverse generation. That is the issue that Jesus is taking issue with here, or exception with. You see, Jesus no doubt has said this for the sake, as he often does in this way, he said this for the sake of all those who were there in the midst, in the multitude, probably including also the religious leaders who had recently themselves 
asked for a sign. But he also, not just for the people who were standing there and perhaps the religious leaders, but he also says this for the sake of the disciples, too, who had apparently failed to heal this boy. So Jesus here, though he's asked how long, though he's certainly expressed a disappointment with their lack of faith, still demonstrates patience with them and says, bring him here to me. In verse 18, and Jesus rebuked the demon and it came out of him and the child was cured from that very hour. You see, for Jesus, this was not a difficult task. Whatever Jesus did here, he accomplished the work quite quickly. And notice here that this was more than mere sickness. This was, in fact, demonic in nature. And it should be important to also note that this does not then warrant application moving forward to where anybody who's sick or anybody who has epilepsy, say, for example, is somehow demon-possessed. That's not what's being communicated here. But it was the case for this young boy. A horrible situation, no doubt, as the father said. He, had, he goes into these seizures, and he's, you know, if he's near a fire, he's fallen into the fire, he's fallen into the water. This was a, a burdened father. But Jesus takes care of this, and in doing so, it prompts the disciples to, who were probably wondering, what, what did we do wrong here? What, what did we mess up? We, we did it the way that we've done it before. It worked before. Why didn't it work this time? And so it prompts them to ask of Jesus in verse 19. It says, Then the disciples came to Jesus privately and said, Why could we not cast it out? And Jesus gives them the answer. In verse 20, So Jesus said to them, Because of your unbelief. It's twice now here that Jesus has addressed the issue of unbelief or the lack of faith. And so here it is. It was because of their unbelief. Jesus had chided the faithless generation before him, and now he told the disciples that they had failed because of their unbelief. The implication being that we are to have faith. And really not just us. It's Jesus' Jesus's desire that all people would have faith, that all would believe. But certainly of those who are followers of Jesus, of those who say that they are disciples, which by the way, Christian, means you, that we're called to have faith. Now, perhaps the disciples are thinking, and, and maybe even you too, well, I, I have a little faith. I, I, I do believe. It's not that the disciples had abandoned all faith in Jesus at this point. So what is it that he was, he was directing them to? Is he telling them here, you just need to have better faith? You need to have bigger faith? You need to have uh, some supernatural faith that, that others would say, oh, wow, look, you know, look at this person. See, that's oftentimes what we go to. That's oftentimes what we think of. Especially in America, bigger's better, right? We just need to have bigger faith. But that's not what Jesus is saying here. He says here, For assuredly I say to you, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you will say to this mountain, move from here to there, and it will move. And nothing will be impossible for you. This is a pretty incredible statement here that Jesus is making. A pretty bold statement as it pertains to the potential for faith. But yet he says here that it's faith of a mustard seed. The mustard seed was the smallest seed in this particular area. Most people were aware of that at this time. And so here, Jesus was not suggesting that the faith itself that they had must be huge. So what is he saying? Well, what Jesus is addressing here is less about the size of their faith and more the object. What was their faith in? What were they trusting in? 
as they sought to heal in faith, what was it that they were believing in? Did they not have faith in Jesus? Were they not trusting in Him? And to some degree here, I would say, I, I think yes. I don't know that they were doing this intentionally. It's not my suggestion this morning that the disciples had somehow just turned away from Jesus, but I don't think that they were truly trusting Him to do the work. Let's look for a moment at verse 21 because this gives us some insight. In verse 21, it says, However, this being the the words of Jesus here, However, this kind does not go out except by prayer and fasting. Now we need to pause here on this verse for a moment. You'll likely notice something in your Bibles this morning, and depending on your translation, you'll either see a little footnote next to that verse indicating something at the bottom of the page, or perhaps verse 21 may be even removed altogether and put towards the bottom of the page. Why is that? Well, because in most manuscripts, in the original manuscripts that we have of the Gospel of Matthew, this verse is not there at all. It's not even there. It ends with, and it will move and nothing will be impossible for you. And so as we're doing or we're seeking to do good Bible study, we need to understand that. We need to ask the question of why. What should we do with that? And then, of course, part of what we would do is to compare the other Gospels. That verse is there in the Gospel of Mark. However, in Mark, it only mentions prayer. It doesn't mention fasting. This is something interesting that we ought to consider as we seek to understand what Jesus is communicating here. You see, the fact of the matter is, if some of you are wondering, well, why in the world is that there? Well, the insertion of the word fasting here, just to be honest, probably came from a scribe who was likely a monk along the way, who inserted fasting because, well, they were passionate about fasting. Because they thought that holy people who seek to see a move of the Lord will fast and pray. And so put that in there as a way to encourage other people to do the same, maybe justified it as being a proper translation. But here's the other problem. That very, that very thing, the very act of inserting that in there ties back to somewhat of a works-based salvation. A, a, a way in which we can earn a great move of God. And this is much of what I believe the disciples were kind of doing at this time as well. Now listen, before we move on, I'm not saying that fasting is bad or that it should not be done. Other parts of Scripture, other, uh, other verses in Scripture would give us proper context and instruction for the practice of prayer and fasting. But it's not in view here. It's not intended to be in view here. And for the disciples, just as someone at one point in time suggested that doing these certain things may prompt a greater move of the Spirit, for the disciples, it had become mechanical as well. A a process, if you will, that if employed, if you do this, then this will happen. It became a little more about them. You see, uh, this might, uh, there, there might be some speculation involved here, but for the disciples, I believe that they had performed some healing before. And, and now this man comes to them and they're probably thinking, okay, this is what we do. This is what we've been doing. It's worked before. We'll do it this way. And, and we're just going to go ahead and take care of it. But this time it didn't work. And listen, I want you to understand, I'm not trying to fault the disciples this morning. The fact of the matter is, this happens to many of us often. 
in, in, in the work of, of ministry. I can't tell you here as we're approaching the end of the year how for two months now I've had all these different blogs and emails and, and church experts and church consultants emailing all these things to suggest to me that somehow our 2021 calendar needs to be fully built at this point, all the events planned, all the ministry functions figured out so that we can just sail right into 2021 and be ready to go. I'm not saying that there's not some planning that we can do, but are you kidding me? How in the world do I know right now what the Lord wants to do in us and through us in November? What might happen between now and then? And so again, I'm not faulting the disciples, but rather thinking we do the same thing. As we begin to plan and we go, oh, well, we did this last January and this was fun, so let's do it again, right? Now don't worry, we're still going to do the Super Bowl chili cook-off. Which suggests to you that there may not be anything spiritual about that event other than fellowship. Fellowship is good, right? And we just like it. We're going to do it again, right? But, but as far as ministry and, and outreach and great moves of the Spirit, we are oftentimes tempted to say, well, this is the template. This is how we've done it before, and so let's do it again instead of doing what Jesus is calling them to do here. You see, Jesus comes down from the mountain. He encounters all of this that, that's going on, right? And, and, and listen, this is what happens when you come down from the mountain, right? You have this great time with God. Here are the disciples, Peter, Peter, James, and John. Just, their minds have been blown. You know, they're, they're thinking, man, we just saw, we just witnessed an aspect of the, of the glory of, of Jesus. And we just want to stay right here. We don't want to go anywhere. And, and now they've got to come down from the mountain and then, boom, they just get hit with, with this stuff going on, right? It's what happens when you come down from the mountain. We have to remember, it's why we go to the mountaintop. You get refreshed there so that you can, you can function in the valley. And so here, Jesus comes down, and, and this man comes to him, and he's at the feet of Jesus. He's throwing himself at the feet of Jesus, and Jesus is saying, listen, guys, you have to have faith, and you need to pray. Because you see, between what, what we have in the manuscripts there and what we see in Mark, that's what's being communicated here. You have to have faith, and you need to pray. Who is your faith in? It's in Jesus. Who are you praying to? God the Father on the merits of the Son, through the power of the Holy Spirit. That's what needs to happen if you want to see a mighty work of God. It's not your template. It's not just how you've done it before. This is what needs to happen. And as this happens, as Jesus says you have faith, and you pray, and you find yourself at the feet of Jesus, then this young boy is healed. What is our lesson here? I know I'm taking a little while to get there this morning. Some of you who are taking notes maybe wonder if you've missed the first point. You haven't. Indulge me for a moment here so we can just see this really in its full context. Go back, if you will, even to Matthew chapter 16. Look at Matthew 16 and verses 13 through 20. What happens there? This is where Peter confesses that Jesus is the Christ. It's at the beginning in Caesarea Philippi. Jesus looks at him and he says, Who, who do people say that I am? Who do they say the Son of Man is? He, he looks to Peter and he looks to the disciples. He says, who, who do you say that I am? And of course, this is where Peter, as we've considered over the last few weeks, he says, you, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus says, yes. And from there, that's where we consider this passage that's often misunderstood, where he says, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I also say to you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. 
and hear what Jesus is saying. If we understand this correctly, if we interpret the Greek here correctly, what he's saying is, you're right, Peter, and on this rock, on Jesus, I will build my church. That's the foundation of the church, Peter. It's me. It's Jesus. And yes, I'm giving you power. He's saying, I've got your back that you will do work and you will preach the gospel. And when you do, the power of heaven will be behind you. I will be behind you. And he goes on to say in verses 24 through 27 there, he says, you guys want to follow me? Do you want to follow me? If you want to follow me, pick up your cross. Be ready to lay down your life just as I'm going to lay down my life for you. He brings, he brings their attention again to himself, to Jesus. And then he goes on from there and in the latter part of chapter 16 into the beginning of, verse, of chapter 17. And he takes him up onto the mountain. He doesn't just take him up there to say, hey, I'm going to show you something cool. He says, you guys come with me and pray. I want you to see something. And as Jesus begins to pray, he's transfigured. He changes. His glory begins to be revealed. And then Moses and Elijah show up. And of course, Peter's like, whoa, we just got to build some tents for these guys. You're all awesome. Right? We're going to stay right here. And Jesus says, no, you're getting it. God interrupts. And he says, no. Jesus, listen to him. Pay attention to him. And, and of course, as God showed up, they just fell to their faces and they're in fear. And, and Jesus comes, and as they begin to look up, remember, oh, the only one left is Jesus. It's just him. Only Jesus. The point here being over and over and over again, Jesus is communicating to his disciples, it's me. You want power? It's in me. You want to know, understand the church? It's about me. You want to see who's greater? It's me. Every time, it's about Jesus. And so then, Jesus comes down from the mountain to a failed healing, and yes, he's disappointed because I think he understood here that they had forgotten about Jesus. So Jesus says, listen, faith the size of a mustard seed, if it's in the right thing, if it's in me, it'll move mountains. Faith and prayer and being at my feet. In verse 20 and 21, what Jesus is saying is you have no power because you had no prayer. You weren't seeking me. You were just doing it. You were just going through the motions. It's about him. It's about Jesus. You see, we want great moves of God. And it's not about us confidently declaring things and speaking it into existence like people will tell you in this day and age. That's a new age pile of garbage, okay? It's about us humbly appealing to the power of Jesus and trusting him to do it. I got to tell you, I am so sick of people. I'm so tired of pastors in particular trying to tell people how great and powerful they are if they can only tap into their potential instead of tapping into the power and potential of the greatness of Jesus. Listen, I'll speak for myself here for a moment. You guys can, you guys can, can share whatever you want about yourselves. Listen, as far as I am concerned, as far as me, listen, there is nothing good in me. There's nothing good in me save Jesus Christ. It's him. If there's anything in me that's powerful, is there, if there's anything in me that's good, if there's anything in me that's great, it's Jesus. Because apart from him, I'm nothing and deserving of death and an eternity in hell. But because of Jesus, I've been redeemed and I'm being made into something new. And there's a promise of eternity with him because of his grace and his goodness and his mercy. It's all him. It's not me. Now, now, furthermore here is Jesus then telling us if we have faith the size of a mustard seed, but, but it's in him, that, that then we can do whatever we want and we can have whatever we want? No. <laughs> Anybody who tells you that is not studying their Bibles. He is not saying that. 
But he is saying something incredible. Listen to this, and I would encourage you to write this down. Nothing is impossible for those who trust in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. I'm going to say that for you again. Nothing is impossible for those who trust in the power of God to accomplish the will of God. Which means whatever he wills to do, if you trust him, he will do it. But that's the hinge point there. It's his will, not ours. And so you see, again, I'm not faulting the disciples. If anything, I find myself relating too much to them because the disciples had begun to trust in themselves, in their experience, in the mechanics of ministry, the process of ministry, and the object of their faith had shifted from Jesus to self. Had a conversation between the services this morning. Someone asked the question, well, did they, did they, do you think they knew this? Probably not at the time. A lot of times, no, we don't understand that that's happening at the moment. But the fact of the matter is, if we're availing ourselves to the Lord, if we're spending time in His Word, if we're spending time in prayer, if we're allowing Him to search our hearts, He often reveals then those things. Then we start to realize, Lord, I've been doing it in the flesh, not by Your Spirit. And what does Pastor Chuck always remind us of? What's begun in the flesh must be maintained in the flesh. What's begun in the Spirit will be maintained in the Spirit. It's the latter that we want. And so friends, lesson number one today is trust in the power of Jesus. As you're planning for your new year, as you're going through the routines that maybe you do, and it's fun, right? We think about the new year and we set goals and everybody does a little bit differently. As you're thinking about the year ahead, keep these things in front of you. Number one, trust in the power of Jesus. Put your trust in Jesus and in his power and that his will would be accomplished. We come to verse 22. It says, Now while they were staying in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be betrayed into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And the third day he will be raised up. And they were exceedingly sorrowful. Now this may seem like a little bit of an aside here. This declaration from Jesus of his death seems to be just sort of inserted in between these two stories. But remember, Jesus is making his way now toward the cross. For him, the cross is in view. It's not that far out. And he's working to prepare the disciples. I mean, they had just had a small lapse in faith. What if suddenly Jesus were killed? What would that do to their faith? What would that cause them to think? And how would they react? And so he continues then to make clear to them what is to happen. And it says that they were sad. That's not an entirely odd emotion for them to have. After all, he's just told them that uh, he would be killed. But what else does he say here? He says that he will be raised after three days. For whatever reason, it doesn't seem that they're really considering that They're only focusing in on the fact that he keeps telling them he's going to die. And so for us, friends, we must note two things here this morning. One, that that it's Jesus here who just demonstrated his great power once again, who's now willingly going to his death. For us to truly appreciate the power of Jesus here, we must understand that it's he who lays his life down. No one takes it from him. He's willingly going to his death for us. He said before it was necessary And so so we know then that he's going to be resurrected. We have the benefit now of looking back on that event. And so here's the second lesson for us today as we plan and consider the year ahead is first, trust in the power of Jesus. And second, remember the victory of Jesus. Remember the victory. 
Now in verse 24, it says that they had come to Capernaum. This was an area where Jesus had done a, a good deal of ministry. This is where Peter lived. And those who received the temple tax came to Peter and said, Does your teacher not pay the temple tax? And in verse 25, Peter says, Yes. Now, here's the thing. There were taxes that you paid to Rome. And at this time, while the temple was still functioning, you also paid a separate tax to the temple for the work of the temple. Uh, in fact, when the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, the Romans continued to collect that tax, and it went to a pagan temple uh, back in Rome. Uh, and the tax that they were required to pay here to the temple was the equivalent of about a day's wage. And it went to the work of the temple. It went to the supplies in the temple. It went to pay the, the priests working in the temple. And so Peter says, uh, yes, Jesus pays this tax. And when he had come into the house, this is probably Peter's house, Jesus anticipated him saying, what do you think, Simon? This is a little bit of a pop quiz here for Peter. He says, from whom do the kings of the earth take customs or taxes? From their sons or from strangers? Peter, in verse 26, says to him, from strangers. And Jesus said to him, then the sons are free. What exactly is going on here, other than the fact that Peter passed another quiz, right? Which I'm sure he had to feel good about. The question here is really, do kings tax their sons? Of course, if we think about this, though we're not that familiar with a, a, a monarchy, the answer is no. Uh, the taxes that come in help to provide for the royal family. So why would a king ask taxes of his own sons? Jesus' point here then is, I don't have to pay the tax. You see, if this is a tax that's going to the temple and the work of the temple and the work of the priests and, and the sacrificial system, why would Jesus need to pay that? His father is in heaven. He is the, why, would, why would Jesus have to help pay for the sacrificial lamb when he himself is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world? If Jesus being the great high priest, why does he need to pay a tax to compensate a priest, a mediator? You see, it, it, it doesn't make sense. Jesus doesn't have to do this. And furthermore, he's including Peter in this, saying, you too are a child of God. This isn't a tax that you must pay. But... What does Jesus do? In verse 27, Nevertheless, lest we offend them. This brings us to our third lesson for the day. First, we trust in the power of Jesus. Second, we remember the victory of Jesus. And third, we consider the humility of Jesus. Folks, in our culture today that has become so focused on whether or not others are offended much of the church, sadly, the very ones who should care if others are offended, has sort of swung the pendulum to where we don't care about other people and whether or not there was an offense. Now, I'm not suggesting this is all of you today. When I say the church, I say the big church, the capital C church. But sadly, especially over the last several months, so much division has entered in, not only to this world and to our country, but also into the church where we're disregarding many of these things. And you see, what Jesus did here, for us to understand it better this morning, what Jesus did here was he avoided needless controversy. And oh, if there was a lesson from Jesus that many of us ought to consider in this day and age, this is it. You see, here's the thing again, not to overstate it, but Jesus didn't need to pay it. 
In many respects, he probably didn't want to pay it because it funded much of what he came to address, whether that was in the case where Jesus came to fulfill the law or whether it's that he came to correct it. But you see, and this is what I would want us to hear, compromise on his part was necessary for the gospel to go forth. Compromise on the part of Jesus was necessary for the gospel to go forth. This was a needless controversy. Christian, we need to hear that for a moment. You see, we are often very good at protest, whether outwardly and publicly, or just silently and somewhat passive aggressively. And a lot of times it's simply not necessary, especially if we're considering others and where there may be potential offense. Listen, I want this to be understood here because there can be a lot of gray in this, right? I'm not saying that we compromise our morals and become complicit in sin. I'm not saying that we need to acquiesce to the silliest of demands. But what I am saying is that a little humility goes a long way. And really, when we talk about humility, it's about meekness. And meekness is strength under control. For Jesus here paying this temple tax, it was meekness. He could have gone in there, as he will, by the way, in another case, and go into the temple and flip tables upside down and say, get out of here. In this particular case, he's saying, we don't need to do this. Another way of stating it is, is this the hill you want to die on? We need to ask ourselves that a bit more today as the church when we're confronted with different issues out in our culture, to really pray and seek the Lord and the leading of His Spirit and say, is this what I need to, is this the hill I'm going to die on? Is this where I'm going to put my stake in the ground? Or can, is this a needless controversy and I can just let this go? Listen, your taxes this year, and it's not all about the taxes, but I mean, it certainly applies. Your taxes are going to go to a lot of things that you probably don't want them to go to. And your taxes are going to be more than what you probably think is fair. I get an amen on that. Okay, there's a few. But you know what? You're called to pay them. That's just the bottom line. You're told to pay it. Now, do you want to continue to push for change in certain areas? Well, sure, go for it. But you're just called to pay them. In fact, that's supposed to be just a secondary thought. It's not even really supposed to be uh, something that you consider. Paul tells us in Romans in chapter 13 and verses 7 and 8, he says, pay to all what is owed them. Taxes to whom taxes are owed. Revenue to whom revenue is owned. Owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Oh, no one anything except what? What's the one thing? What is the one thing that we owe? To love each other. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Paul says, do, do whatever they're asking you to do. Don't complain about it. Don't whine about it. Just do what you're supposed to do. Love people. That's what I'm calling you to do. Just love people. And here's what I want us to understand today. Maybe the church would be more effective today if we did a bit more of trusting in the power of Jesus, praying and seeking Jesus, remembering his victory, and avoiding needless controversy in exchange for just loving people. I am deeply saddened by much of what the church has gained a reputation for over the past year. And what me and others as a part of the church have developed a reputation for without even attempting to. See, we've got to think about others. We've got to think. And remember, remember when, when, when Peter was, was all confused, and according to his buddies, didn't know what he was saying there on the Mount of Transfiguration. Excuse me, it was a little bit earlier. I'm sorry. Um, it was there when, when Jesus was predicting his death and his resurrection again. And, of course, you know, Peter runs up to him and says, no, 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 it's not possible. This can't happen to you. And, and then, of course, Jesus says, get behind me, Satan. And what does he say about that? He says, you're thinking like men. 
This is another example where far too often we just think the way that this world tells us to think instead of thinking the way that God thinks and looking at it the way that Jesus looks at it. You see, Paul elsewhere in 1 Corinthians in chapter 9 and verses 19 through 22 tells us, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law. Why? That I might win more. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ. Why? That I might win more. To the weak I became weak. Why? That I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people. Why? That I by all means might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. What is the motivation? The thing that we're putting our stake in the ground on the hill that we're going to die on, what's the motivation? Is it the gospel? Is it to win people to Christ? And so many will say, oh, but if we don't stand our ground on this or on that, if we just give in to everyone that may be offended, then what will happen? Well, listen, first and foremost here, again, I'm not suggesting that we just say, you know, hey, whatever to everything. But a lot of times we need to even consider what's the stand that we're taking Is it a stand for the gospel? Is that what it is? Is it truly a stand for the gospel or is it a stand for our comforts? You see, throughout history, Christians stood and they gave their lives, but for what? For the gospel. They gave their lives so that they could declare that Jesus was Lord of all, that they were going to tell people about him and there was nothing that was going to silence them. And if that's the stand, then amen, do it. If anybody seeks to silence that, if anybody seeks to tell you that you can't proclaim Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, then absolutely we stand. But I think there are other times when a little humility goes a long way. And for those that are maybe feeling a little uncomfortable about this, here's the thing. We've got to look at what Jesus does here. Now, yes, this is, he's talking here about paying the temple tax. So when Jesus does this, he's not engaging in some sort of sin. He's not becoming complicit in some sort of evil act here, okay? And so there are times for us to pray and to seek the Lord and, and, and for discernment on things that we may feel like, I need to take a stand on this, or no, I don't need to take a stand on this. But, but in all of this, let us not forget here the fourth thing that we see through this very unusual account. As we return here uh, to the final verse, Jesus says this to Peter. He says, go to the sea, cast in a hook, and take the fish that comes up first. And when you've opened its mouth, you will find a piece of money. Take that and give it to them for me and you. This is kind of bizarre, right? I mean, this is, this is kind of an interesting story here. But more than just looking at this and saying, wow, this is amazing, this story of this fish that Peter caught and had a coin in its mouth. What we need to look at here is, friends, do do you need any greater evidence of the sovereign power and providence of God the Father, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, and the working of His Holy Spirit, that we serve a risen Lord who, in ways that we don't understand, can send a man to the sea to catch a fish with a coin in its mouth for the sake of paying the tax that he doesn't need to pay, but out of love and humility for the sake of the spread of the gospel will nevertheless pay. I mean, he orchestrates this whole thing. I can't even go out to the lake and catch a fish right now. Just a fish, any fish, let alone one that has a coin in its mouth. And so, friends, lesson number four is rest in God's providence and sovereignty. Rest, let me me state this for you differently. Rest in the supreme power, authority, and protective care of Jesus. Because that's what sovereignty and providence means. 
And so if you wrestle with aspects of God's sovereignty and God's providence, listen, they're in the Bible, so we can't deny them. We're not called to fully understand them, but when we consider what they mean, that we can rest in the supreme power and authority and protective care of Jesus. And I would challenge each of us, myself included, that as we close here and as I pray, and, and certainly just as you sing some praises to the Lord, to consider these four things. As you look at the year ahead, and, and, and somewhat in the vein of our Christmas Eve service, if you were here for that or tuned in online, this idea that, that God works in the most unexpected of ways. And as we'll sing here in the song, that he, that he is always working, even when it doesn't seem like it, even when you don't see it, it doesn't feel like it, He's there, he's, he's working. And for all that we may encounter in the year ahead, as we seek to just kind of prepare and plan, is it, is it trust in yourself that's motivating you? Is it the process that you normally go through? You just kind of do it again, it's mechanical, not really considering Him? Or do you come back to a place where you say, okay, Lord, I'm trusting in your power, not my own. I'm remembering your victory because it gives me hope. I'm considering your humility because right now we need to be a part of putting back together much of the division we see within this country. And Lord, I'm going to rest in your sovereignty, knowing that, yes, there's times when, when maybe uh, trusting your power or, or, or considering your humility causes me to think that somehow I'm going to be in a, a difficult place. I'm going to be in a place where I'm, I'm struggling or taking advantage of or having to give something up. But the fact of the matter is, Lord, you are sovereign and you're providential, which means you have authority over all things, which means you care for me. You have me in mind. And so when we do these things, when we trust in the power of Jesus, when we remember his victory, when we consider his humility, when we rest in his sovereignty, there is truly nothing that we should fear. But rather, we can move forward with confidence saying, just even a mustard seed focused on you, Lord. Yeah, it'll move mountains. Your will will be done, Lord. I believe it. I trust in it. Amen. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, we do give you thanks here today, Lord, for who you are. You are the way maker. Lord, you're so good. And Father, we declare here today, I pray each and every heart, we trust in your power, Jesus. We remember your victory, Jesus. We consider your humility, Jesus. Make it our own. And Lord, we'll, we will rest in your sovereignty and in your providence over us. Thank you, Lord, for who you are. We pray this all in the name of Jesus. Amen. Here at CCNE, there are so many events happening throughout the week, so make sure you're subscribed to the weekly e-bulletin so you can be fully informed of all that we're doing. For more info, or if there are any prayer requests you'd like to share with us, be sure to visit us at ccnortheast.org.